0: Welcome to episode 30 everyone. This particular interview is with one of our professors, his name is Dwayne Curry from Acadia University. Um, He had some very interesting points to bring up with the mechanism used to secure the Bitcoin network and then we went into exploring a little bit about how quantum computing is going to impact cryptocurrency and the way that we access our money through crypto wallets. Um, Definitely a really good discussion there. Um, And then we talked about the positive and negative aspects of owning cryptocurrency, what kind of impact that could have on um, the rest of the people who don't have access to crypto uh, versus what sort of an advantage people have, do have if they get into crypto early. Um, And we also touched a little bit on crypto taxes. So it was a really wonderful conversation to have, and we hope you enjoy listening to this particular episode of Crypto.
1: The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. The content
2: discussed are intended to be for informational purposes only.
0: Welcome to episode 30, everyone. Today, we are going to be interviewing Dwayne Curry, and it is yet another of our series of simple questions smart people ask. Now, Keegan and I both know Dwayne from Acadia University. His role at Acadia is quite complex because he essentially can do everything. <laughs> I would categorize Dwayne as a polymath of sorts in that aspect, but he's also a very good friend of mine. And he also has taught me some of my computer science courses. So I will let Dwayne introduce himself and show off everything that he is awesome at. And then we can continue with this episode.
2: Thanks, Maruga. Um, so I'm Dwayne Curry, and I've worked at Acadia University for ages, uh, it seems now. The the main thing that I do is I, I do um, institutional research, so data reporting, statistics, other sorts of uh, research projects that we do internally. And I've also taught courses in computer science for, I guess, about 20 years, um, so usually one or two courses a year. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I've been doing for work. Um, as, far as, as far as other things, you know, economics is one of my sort of side hobbies of study. And, and so that's kind of how we get into conversations about Bitcoin and <laughs> so forth. But yeah, And so that's,
0: even in computer science, though, the course that you taught me, one of the courses actually, was on security. So you have a very good idea of the technical aspects of the technology used to encrypt Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Can you give us a little bit of a background on how you got to be that security expert?
2: Well, I mean, at, at one point in time, uh, I did work for our computing services department. And so one of the things that was in my area of responsibility for a while was actually com- computer security. And so that got into areas of, you know, network security, cryptography, and some of the applied areas of cryptography so when i when i saw that security course come up i looked at that and i went hey this is actually kind of a you know right in my background um so yeah that's how i ended up getting connected up with that is to spend spent a little while uh doing work around security and crypt- and i'll say the applied end of cryptography so not how rsa works per se but um, into how you actually might apply that for doing things like single sign-on systems and these sorts of things. So,
0: All right. So RSA, can you explain RSA to our audience in one sentence?
2: In one sentence? <laughs> how many conjunctions can I use? <laughs> 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 so basically RSA is your pretty standard um, uh, public key encryption where if you have some particular bit of information where you can encrypt it, such you can you have to produce a pair of keys so that one you can take that data and encrypt it, but you need the other one to be able to decrypt it. So it's
1: a um, trapdoor. It's, yeah, it's yeah. tra- trapdoor cryptography. Kind of meaning it's easy to go from one from the the public key. To, yeah. Sorry, it's easy to go from the private key to the public key, but if you only have the public key, it's difficult to derive the private
2: key, which is the thing
1: that keeps the information secret at the end of the day.
2: Yeah. 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 And so it's... Yeah, so essentially the security around it is just one particular mathematical problem that no one's found a computationally, say, tractable, but uh, something that you can do in any reasonable amount of time. Um, in theory, you can solve it but just it takes so long to solve um that it's effectively secure
1: right i think that'll be one of the discussions that we'll we'll dive into today i think you had a question around quantum computing and whether or not that can actually break rsa or uh, elliptic curve cryptography which is what bitcoin's based off of so maybe we'll try to de- de-technify that, uh, that whole discussion a little bit um, when we actually get into it.
0: Yeah, I'm going to get back, uh, backtrack a little bit to the whole public key, key, private key thing because we haven't discussed this in depth on our podcast before. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we establish the fundamentals in um, a really easy to understand language so that the rest of this discussion makes a lot of sense. So you talked of a trapdoor function and you gave your um, essentially one sentence answer to what RSA is. And for our audience who um, may not have heard of these terms before, just think of it as one cannot be derived without the other. It's just impossible. It's um, mathematically really impossible to find one without the other. And if you wanted to elaborate on that uh, in any way, you can, the both of you.
1: I, like, rather I than using the word impossible, I, like I would, yeah. I would just say infeasible, computationally okay, yeah. infeasible. Like our go. our traditional computers can't do it in any reasonable span of
2: time, so we basically shouldn't instruct them to do so. Yeah, yeah. and I could only repeat <laughs> the same thing. It's yeah. like, so much of computer security, especially around cryptography, isn't about making something impossible; it's making it take far more effort than it's worth.
0: There we go. Okay. Uh, cool. Yeah. I like that. Okay. So to conceptualize it, impossible is a little, it's untrue. Uh, And here we're going to talk about how having something be broken or broken into in the case of Bitcoin is possible if there was a really, really, really powerful computer capable of computing this particular problem in such a way that uh, you could break the encryption. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Um, Duane, could you, is there an example or analogy from Enigma that you could draw to this particular conversation? I wonder.
2: I don't know about Enigma because that my understanding of Enigma was it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a public key. Um, it was a cipher. Was it not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in in a sense, I mean, Enigma was you were encrypting something, and you were relying on the other side not being able to determine the key it was encrypted with. Um, in terms of in terms of public key and, and the f- types of technology that uh, cryptocurrencies are based off of, it's actually trying to say it's actually trying to separate it so that um, you can encrypt something with one, but you can't decrypt it without the other. So. Um, when we talk about the keys, like a public key and a private key, um, the pub usually what we want to do is we want to tell the world, here is this one key, and we call it our public key. If you're sending me something, encrypt your message with it. And then I'm the only person who has that private key. And so I'm the only person that has the other side key that can decrypt it. And yeah. So in terms of Enigma, really, there was just one key. And so, as soon as they found the Enigma machine, yeah. then they actually had the Enigma machine and the stuff the, the guy had with it. Um, then they were actually able to take it and go, okay, this is how we can uh, solve this.
1: I do want to contextualize okay. a little bit, and just for our listeners that don't know what Enigma was, it was uh, the 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 German... A messaging protocol that was used throughout uh, throughout World War II uh, to communicate between uh, all the different groups or troops of uh, Russian, or not Russian, German units all over the world. Uh, not all over the world, all over <laughs> Europe, doing a poor job of contextualizing. But uh, the Enigma, it was important to break that, uh, that cipher so that the, uh, the Allied troops knew what, uh, what move was coming next out of the German command. And essentially the German command would send these messages out uh, and and it would be encrypted and the, the German troops would have that private key. They would have the ability or they would have that cipher, that cipher key that allowed them to decode the message and, and proceed accordingly. And so uh, like one other like drip of knowledge here is that like, cryptography is is kind of a weapon of war like the ability to obscure information uh is uh is a weapon of war and that's that's kind of an interesting little factoid or like thing yeah. to put in your mind when now considering we've got money based off of uh cryptography
2: yeah that's that's actually that's a really interesting way to look at that um yeah because that was really it's what its major application for a long time was coded messages for right you can call it military purposes. Like people used old types of ciphers as far back as ancient Greece. Yeah. Right. But it was for coded messages for not necessarily military reasons, but you were trying to keep it covert for a reason. At least privacy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned in that was um, how you want the world to know about your public key. And then the private key is how uh, whatever you do receive, you can actually receive it Um, to, again, Give another analogy for that, something that we've used in our workshops is your public keys, like your address, when you want someone to know how to find you, if you're inviting them over, or the best example, if you're ordering something online, you, you have to give them your address. Your public address. Your public address, because how else are they going to send you whatever you have ordered? But in order to receive it, to take it actually inside your house, you still need your private key for lack of a better word which is your personal key into your house so you are the only person who has access to your private key and your public key is what you give to the world so that they can send you stuff in terms of cryptocurrency your public um, address is what the world knows to send you money to and your public key is private key Oh, sorry, thank you. Your private key is how you essentially access your money.
1: At that location, at that, at that public location. address or public key location. Yeah. 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 So that, that analogy has worked really well for us in the past. People kind of get that click moment where they're like, oh, okay, like, yeah, I actually do see how this might work and map onto my version of reality. So that's, that's we've, we've got some benefit from that.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So we've established some ground and some basic fundamental definitions of what we're going to cover. Duane, what is your question <laughs> <laughs> with respect to how this relates into the world of crypto?
2: Yeah, so I mean yeah, a lot of things for me like with uh, uh with cryptocurrencies um aren't so some, like sometimes they relate to the technology in it and sometimes it's kind of like the effects or the side pieces of it. And so and, so one of the things around uh Let's pick on Bitcoin, for you know. It's
1: it's the easy one to pick on. It's the base case; everyone
2: knows about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Every, every, well, many people know. <laughs> <of them. laughs> but everyone who's watching this podcast probably is with Bitcoin. <laughs> but the, um, but you know, in terms of the technology that's used there, it uses public key cryptography in order to maintain the database of records, right? Um, but. One of the, like, so one of those things is, I mean, we talk about, uh, you know, it being a really, comp, such a computationally hard thing to actually solve. Like, if you have someone's public key, can you determine their private key? And steal their money. And steal their money, right? Like, Right. Um, or to- steal everybody's money in the case of Bitcoin. Right, because like, if <laughs> you can do it once, then why couldn't you do it again? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So now, I mean my understanding is that uh RSA is what is tends to be used in cryptocurrencies right is that
1: no they're almost always based off of elliptic curve cryptography in the case of bitcoin it is ecc oh well that's interesting yeah <laughs> so because RSA can be can be gained right it's one of like the earlier cryptographic schemes and it's just simply not secure enough like our modern day computers can break a weak RSA isn't that true?
2: Yeah. So, well, yeah, Well, yes, it can break a weak RSA. So that's that's where you get into how computationally hard can you make the task, right? Right. So with RSA, the amount of effort it takes to break it goes up exponentially with the number of bits in your key, like how, how many ones and zeros there are in your total key. Um, and so nowadays, they tend to recommend sort of a 2048 bit key um, to be sufficiently secure for cryptographic use, even by the military and so forth. Um, I think it's still at that. Um, Now, it's interesting you say elliptic curve, because actually at both the time that I was teaching that security course that you mentioned, um, security agencies, so like, um, I'm trying to remember what the Canadian...
1: Canadian National Defense, or what's
2: it, C- or CSE. C, Uh CSE. Okay. Um, uh, Communication Security Establishment. And um, NSA in the States, they actually issued releases identifying that, th- that there'd been some indications that theoretically elliptic curve cryptography could be vulnerable to quantum computing. Right. Like that there could be quantum computing algorithms devised that might actually be able to break ECC or elliptic curve cryptography. Um, which is sort of the competitor to RSA. Um, I haven't seen something for RSA, like, I haven't seen anything come about, about RSA being able to be broken that way. Um, so that's, I, I, yeah, I thought for sure Bitcoin and, and so on would probably have used RSA, but at the time at which Bitcoin was developed, this wasn't an, a known issue. When did that issue come out, or when was uh, that publication been, made? Given the timing, it would have been twenty late twenty fifteen I think okay, yeah, cool, so like six uh, years after Bitcoin then yeah, so at the at the time, like so elliptic curve cryptography had come out before that, and it was actually like so as a history RSA was the first one, the first one of these that was really feasible, and it came out in the 1970s I think sounds about right, yeah, yeah, so elliptic curve came onto the scene in eighty two I do believe initially but it was it wasn't developed really into active cryptosystems until sort of late 90s early 2000s yeah and so of course it's the new thing there and it seems like another another option so and it's actually faster to compute right with elliptic curve
1: right because you said so rsa you would need 2048 to have like strong uh uh, like a strong rsa and i believe it's like like a Elliptic curve with with two hundred fifty six bits is on orders of magnitude stronger than the RSA. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah, so, so stronger with smaller. Yeah, exactly. And it, and you could actually do the encryption faster. Um, so elliptic curve, in a lot of ways, technically was great, and the world was really happy seeing a second, different method of of public key encryption. Because uh, if you have only one, and something is found to be a vulnerability in it, then everything that we use on the web, like when you go and you log into your bank account or you log into Amazon and you make a purchase and and anything like that, um, your connections to all those things are protected um, with encryption and it starts out, has to start out with a public key system, whether it's RSA or it's elliptic curve um, to be able to make it secure. So if, if you only have one option, and there's a vulnerability gets found in it, then everything becomes insecure. So
1: so what essentially I, you're talking about is a backdoor into elliptic curve. That's that's kind of like the term that people use when they say like, yeah. could a quantum computer like break the cryptography? It's like, yeah. well, if they did, that would be the backdoor. Is there some like mathematical computation that can be done where it's not infeasible for my MacBook Pro to do it, for example? like?
2: Uh, is that available or do I need a quantum computer to, to build that my, back door? My understanding of it is you need a quantum computer to do it. Um, so basically people have tried for ages to take a standard model of computer that works the way in which we design, design your standard electric computing devices, um, and try to solve the problem. And it just takes forever, like but, effectively exactly, forever. Exactly. <laughs> like thousands of
1: years, hundreds of thousands of years, yeah. if you actually saw that program to fruition.
2: Yeah. yeah but so in theory there's different types of operations that are available in a quantum computer scenario I am not an expert in quantum computing not neither are all. we yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all just speculating here <laughs> yeah but there's there's different types of operations that can happen so um like so one thing that I can use as an exam is as, as an analogy is if you look at digital electronics if you try to take, something implemented using digital electronics and you try to come up with a generic way of if you, let's say for example, I mean, this is going to be a slightly mathy example, <laughs> <laughs> but if you are try if you have some sort of a, a plot, like a graph and you want to find the, the total area under it, regardless of what, what the shape looks like. Um, if you're doing something did, in digital electronics, you have to build a whole lot, a huge circuit to be able to to be able to manage that computation. Still, you're only kind of approximating. Whereas you can actually, with analog electronics, using amplifier circuits and stuff like that, you can actually, in just a very like, few components, actually design a circuit where at one point you can basically. Take, you can basically inject the signal, which has that wavy curve. And at another point in the circuit, you actually get the answer. Um, right.
1: So by like, using a whole different computational medium, you can approach the problem from a
2: different perspective well, completely. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's the issue for quantum computing. And that's why there's a whole lot of research going on is looking at they're not people trying to research these things. They're not doing it with the intent of how can we break this and manipulate it? <laughs> they're looking at the research from the point of view of is, is, are there potentially feasible ways that you can use these? Like, are there potentially algorithms that you can be doing with these types of computers that can actually break some of these things that we previously were not really breakable? And so that's one of the things that they were identifying in 2015 is that elliptic curve could be vulnerable to uh, quantum computing. Now, in practice, quantum, quantum computing at least in any practical way, is not gonna be sitting in, you know, your in the corner of your office. You're not gonna have a quantum computer in the corner of your office. Because yet, yet. it's <laughs> it's gonna take a while because yep. like even the unit for like anything you do with it has most for the most part has to be kept near absolute zero like so there's all these temperature requirements and all this kind of stuff that
1: right now you can rent a quantum computer from like the the 12 places on earth that have them it's like yeah i've various (laughs) ibm resources around the globe and then google basically is the probably the nsa as well and they've got they're probably not renting theirs
2: though yeah a couple a couple of governments probably have have such things and so that's where that's where the nervousness around that comes from is if there, once there are ones which are sufficiently in existence that you could actually run these algorithms on it, then anything which relies on those could be insecure. So right now, I don't know if we're right to the point of someone can tie one of these things up to other computing things that can then farm blocks of Bitcoin (laughs) records and then, and crack them and re-encode them and all this kind of stuff. Um, So I don't know if it's at that point yet, but it is actually one of those vulnerabilities. And so, I mean, somewhat the, like the thing that goes through my head is if at some point, like five years, 10 years down the road, if, if like some malicious actor, um, you know, some, Government probably, um, or things related to to a government, um, have enough investment in this that they end up being able to solve that. Um, what happens in terms of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, right? It are there mechan are there mechanisms or are there ways to migrate the the blockchain behind Bitcoin into something more secure? Like, are, well, like. What would be the ways that a cryptocurrency that already exists would actually um, react to an event like that?
1: Okay, cool. So if I'm to distill the question into, like, I'm I'm hearing basically two parts of this question um, that are rooted in the same <laughs> underlying question. Like, can a quantum computer A farm all the blocks, and can a quantum computer B uh, break the encryption that protects my money? because uh, those are like two different aspects of the Bitcoin network. And uh, I want to start off by saying like the Bitcoin protocol, first and fundamentally is a is a social protocol, um, meaning that uh, you've got you've got the blockchain, it's chugging along and let's just say it forks for whatever reason and a fork is a, a divergence in what people think is the the right Bitcoin. We saw this in 2017 with Bitcoin cash and and that was the first instance of a fork now if if a nefarious actor was to come along and start uh farming a bunch of blocks with the uh, with a uh, or mining a bunch of blocks with a quantum computer that would essentially instantiate a fork where the, the social layer of bitcoin they could choose not to participate in th- that version of the blockchain because at that point there would be two versions there'd be two distinct blockchains one that you know is uh thousands of blocks beyond uh the other and the social group could say okay well that's a nefarious actor doing that we want to choose to use the version of bitcoin that doesn't have that going on now i could see that nefarious actor like thinking okay well i'll just continuously attack the one that the social group uh wants to uh wants to participate on and, and i see that as being a bit of an issue um and then the second, the second part is like, can a quantum computer break the encryption? And I think that that you can continuously scale up the level of encryption according to how powerful the quantum computer gets. So, what uh, one quote that I thought was pretty funny was, uh, "The world will know when a quantum computer exists because the first thing that they'll do is mine all the Bitcoin, or they'll like start hacking all the wallets, and that that's going to cause some noise." And I thought that was kind of funny. on on the on the flip side though like you can you can just scale up uh, basically the random seed that generates your secure uh, wallet and you've scaled up that up as necessary and maybe it's just a race between how quickly you can scale that up um, versus how quickly our quantum computers get better and I'm not sure if that sufficiently answers your question or not, but uh, that that was kind of how I went around conceptualizing that. What do you...
0: Yeah, for the second thing that you said, I have heard of Andreas Antonopoulos talk about this at length. And one of the conclusions is that, uh, well, there are wallets that have not been touched or have been dormant because people have lost their keys to it or they don't, they are not existent anymore on this planet. I don't know what problem I have with saying that they've they're passed away. <laughs> anyway, there's people who, who've lost their keys or they just don't have access to it because they don't exist on this planet anymore. And what quantum computing could potentially do if, if anybody has access to it, what they could do is um, try to attack the wallets of these dormant, uh, attack these dormant wallets because for everybody who still has access to their wallet, the protocol can be changed so that uh, the most recent level of attack does not... Um, C- cannot break the encryption for the updated or upgraded version of accessing the Bitcoin blockchain. So yes, can quantum computing break into a wallet? It is possible. When this is gonna happen, we don't know whose wallet is gonna impact most. The ones that uh, probably are have dormant. the most,
1: probably but, have the most Bitcoin. That'd be the first one I would attack.
0: Uh, sure, but it, like. Uh, that can all. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter though, because if you upgrade um, the wallet software, then you still cannot be attacked. It would. The most likely target that I see is the people or the wallets that have been dormant for years, because those would be the public keys or the private keys. Sorry, that um, have not been upgraded, or the, the yeah, the money hasn't been moved out of those wallets. Is more precisely what I meant to say.
1: One one concept I'd like to yeah. inject here is uh, the idea that Bitcoin is an anti-fragile system which is different than calling it durable Uh, anti-fragile means that it's expected that someday it'll run into some instance that that would provide it some sort of structural uh difficulty so like a solar flare might like that takes place over china for example could fry a good chunk of the electronics running the bitcoin network and it's like when that happens what happens to bitcoin well, that actually it doesn't go down. It's uh, it's sufficiently decentralized that uh, that it'll continue chugging along in the areas of the world that weren't affected by this 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 frying. And so like that's one example of of it being anti-fragile. The other example would be, okay, quantum computing comes out and it turns out, yes, it can actually break a lot of the mechanisms that are inherent to Bitcoin. How does the Bitcoin network recover? It's like, it's up to the coders at that point to essentially build um, build it in such a way that it, it doesn't, maybe I don't think it would go on pause necessarily, but uh, uh, it, there are mechanisms to recover from such a thing like uh, like that kind of a vulnerability.
2: Yeah. yeah, so to some degree, I mean in terms of in terms of that, what you're saying is because there's a lot of copies essentially That are maintained of this, people would actually try to use those as a way to defend against edited copies or or new chains that come out. Is that? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, we we already saw that take place in 2017. Basically, there's a splinter group that said, okay, this is the real Bitcoin. And the social layer, the people actually using the Bitcoin network at the end of the day said, no, we don't recognize that as the real Bitcoin. We're going to continue to use this one over here. And so even though there might be a quantum computer, they're farming Bitcoin quantum over here, uh, they can still use Bitcoin core. Like those two things can exist at the same time. And uh, it's up to the the social layer uh, to make that decision, essentially. Which is kind of like cool. one of those, yes. like those nuances of both the entire system. Like, is it a technical layer that is underneath all of this or is it a social layer? And we talked about this before the podcast, but at the end of the day, money's a belief system. And so if I don't believe that the, the Bitcoin quantum over here is real money, then there's there's no reason for me to be using that over here. I can, I can still use the, the original Bitcoin software.
2: Cool. So... I had a question related to something Ruga brought up. Yeah. Is so I guess in some regards, I mean, what happened? Uh, what was the company a couple years back where? Quadriga. Quadriga. Um, but in a smaller scale, like let's say, for example, you know. Let, let's say, for example, I have a parent that um, really liked the idea of something like Bitcoin or whatever, or Ethereum or something like that. And they pass away and they, their key, their keys aren't available. Like they just like, well, I generated the key and it's the passcode is in my head. you know, Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, so in a traditional monetary system, right. Cause I actually have had this kind of experience happen in a traditional sense, right? So a bank account exists and there's $20,000 in it. Um, I can basically talk to the bank and prove to them that I'm the executor of whatever will and and whatnot. And then they can basically assign me the money and in, in, in some form or fashion, right? There's a, pro- there's a process for, for doing that. Is there a way to do anything of that sort in a Bitcoin sort of, or more general cryptocurrency sort of sense, right? Um, do you, do you uh, know? Sorry.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. We've talked about this before. And it's a funny question. My dad asked me the same question <laughs> a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. And I tried to explain it to him. And I, th- I think I'll have to explain it to him again because the concept was so strange. And I said, well, d- assuming that you have stored your cryptocurrency uh, or a- stored access to your cryptocurrency from one wallet, you get a backup phrase from that wallet. That backup phrase can be 12 or 24 words. If you make a copy of that backup phrase and you give it to your lawyer and you give it to your child, you give it to whoever and you say, okay, if I pass away, then this essentially belongs to my my wife or my child or whoever. That's all you have to do.
1: Okay. Yeah. Part of Dwayne's question was if you just have that 12 word phrase in your head and you didn't tell anyone about it. And if, like, let's just be real about the situation, if you die with 12 words in your head, and those 12 words is equal to a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, like, that's out of existence at that point in time, like, you you can't go and recover that. I mean, the the billion dollars worth of Bitcoin is still there. It's just no one knows the 12 words that unlocks it. And, like, that's the real situation of it all. Like, you actually have to be really responsible with your key management um the the two things that i would i would the solutions if someone came to us and said hey like i want to protect my bitcoin after i'm di- after i die like i want to give it to an inheritor then uh, we would recommend one of two things and that's what mruga just said like write down those 12 yeah. words put it in a fireproof safe keep it with your lawyer put it in, with your will safe in deposit
2: box is a pretty typical exactly scenario yeah for
1: people and the other way that i i would be comfortable with uh like recommending to someone would be a multi-signature wallet which just means that that like the the way to unlock that money depends on not one key but three keys where any two of those keys can move the money so you might be able to die with those 12 words in your head. And, uh, and then the two other keys that exist, you might keep one with your inheritor and one with the lawyer. So you have three different keys. And if your inheritor and lawyer get together and sign a transaction that moves that Bitcoin, uh, you're all good to go. You're free to keep your 12 your word phrase in your head if that's what you choose to do. And you're free to die with it, in fact. And, uh, and your, your money is still safe. And that's, that's a cool kind of cryptographic trick that we can do. Uh, where we basically lock one Bitcoin address with three keys instead of one, and that can extend up to five keys, seven keys. And we can do that with a multitude of things, and corporate governance gets yeah. brought into the conversation yeah. at this point. But
2: yeah, my brain is already processing how you actually manage that. and Yeah, I can all oh, this really <laughs> cool software that will do it all for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is pretty neat. Cool. So yeah, I mean, so basically, the big thing is anyone who's having any significant amount of has any significant value in, in a cryptocurrency like that, it's really important for them to keep something like that piece of information yes. in a spot that would be wherever anyone would go in those situations, right? Right. So whether it's a fireproof box someone has in their basement or whether it's a safe deposit box, that's a really important thing for someone to do if they're wanting to make sure that Yeah. Yeah. I've
1: had people tell us that, that that's like totally overkill for like storing our money, right? Like, why would you ever want to have that much responsibility over your money? Like they like the fact that you can call the bank and get a transaction reversed. And it's like, yep, that, that sounds good. That I mean, that makes sense uh, in one light. And then in like a completely different scenario in a different light, it, it does make a lot of sense, a different context. And I read this one article recently and it said, like, okay, if you put a million dollars worth of gold, in a bank in Tokyo in 1905, what's that gold worth now? And they're like, oh well, you know, appreciation of the value of gold, and like the answer is zero dollars because that the the war reparations that Tokyo paid and Japan paid and Germany paid. If you had money in the banks in the form of gold at that time, they were just removed from the bank. And so yeah, it, it might seem like overkill, but on like the span of a 100, 150 years, this might just be the best way to store your money because at the end of the day you can memorize those 12 words you can put them where you want and there's not really any organization you're not putting them in a bank necessarily you're the ultimate uh Accessor. custodian yeah.
2: of your own money yeah unless someone breaks the crypto systems involved <laughs> exactly sure. it's, it's perfectly <laughs> preserved as opposed to in in a bank where in theory governments can potentially get at it yeah you know, through other means and stuff yeah, yeah. that's right
0: Yeah. So you said that earlier, I remember um, that economics is uh, a hobby for you. And before we started recording this podcast, you were talking about some uh, very multifaceted uh, ways of just talking about economics because it kind of um, trickles down into many different topics. So let's I'd like to segue this conversation from talking about the technical aspects of cryptocurrencies and attaching them to some um, segment in economics. So what are some of your curiosities or questions on how that works out?
2: Well, so on that front, one one of the things when I think about it in terms of stuff that we rely on as an economy, to work, I mean, you know, definitely in the Canadian context um, is like, say for example, taxation, right? So, mm. um, so we have all these systems like roads and schools and all this kind of stuff that relies on people paying taxes. And so in a, if a government had, like if a government and with banks and so on have, um, have some access to flows of, data about flows of of money they can potentially tell if someone is evading taxes and those sorts of things Um, and so one one mechanism that i can throw on there anyway is is all employers in canada um, for every employee every year they have to file both to the employee but also everything you get in a t4 um which is
1: our like our Canadian income tax statement form that needs to go to the government by the way yeah
2: yeah yeah so yeah so we we our employers give us a T4 to say this is how much you earned this is how much we already took off in taxes this is what we did for pensions and other things uh, so whenever an employer sends one of those to the employee they also send a corresponding one to the government so the government for like regular con- like regular year to year employee employees um, the government has information about what they're earning from standard employers. But there's an awful lot, and it's growing. Um, number number of people aren't in that employment scenario. And so when think about if if the world were mu- to migrate heavily over to cryptocurrencies um, as a means of exchange, how would taxation work in that scenario? because that might I don't know enough about how. The actual i'll say the social behaviors in terms of that tend to work but one of the things is where there's the degree of privacy um, how how would governments work within that structure to try to maintain the ability to reliably get taxes right
1: right yeah so there are some softwares that can track the bitcoin network transactions on the bitcoin network very effectively so the at the end of the day if you're buying bitcoin chances are you're doing a transfer from your bank account into a bitcoin exchange and that particular transaction can be tracked. So these exchanges have reporting requirements most of the time. If you live in Canada, United States, they must report who is using their network, who's using the exchange and for what and how much are they buying. And like that kind of information gets reported to the government. So to say that the government doesn't know who has Bitcoin, um, that's, it's, the onus is on them. They have the ability to know whether or not they are knowing and actively pursuing people whom they think are invading taxes. They have all the data they need to, to go out and do that today with, with existent technologies. Um, and that's like a, that's a pro for Bitcoin if bitcoin stands any chance of becoming a globally accepted or like a nationally accepted uh, money or currency of sorts it needs to be able to be tracked like the government's just not straight up not going to want yeah. to uh, <laughs> bring this into its economy any way, shape or form if it can't track it so there are cryptocurrencies yeah. that are completely private and i would i would go so far as to say that, that those are like more so part of the shadow economy of the world and,
0: that means you don't want to be found in the first place.
1: Yeah, if you're using those cryptocurrencies, yeah. you've got to, <laughs> you, you're hiding something, kind of by by the fact that you're using them. And I think that there's real challenges that that the government will face with uh, with organized crime and, and people seeking privacy using those using those cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Uh, and then the other side is like, uh, no, I lost it. Okay, maybe I'll come back do something. To add there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well with respect to tracking what is happening in the cryptocurrency world well any any transaction that takes place on a public blockchain is accessible to everybody on in this world and um, yeah right now with the way that employment works you talked about how there's a T4 that gets generated and then one goes to the government and one goes to you and then you have to report it on your end. And that, that, that entire process happens with our current system and with respect to reporting taxes, um, if you receive your income in Bitcoin or if you have Bitcoin transactions, it we still have to report transactions in Canadian dollar. We cannot report transactions in Bitcoin. And one uh, one, some one thing that's really tedious about that is we have to f- find the exact uh, price of the of Bitcoin in Canadian dollar at the time that this transaction took place, and that mm-hmm. is extremely difficult because even in yeah. one single day, Bitcoin can be b- very volatile. It can. St- change by, I don't know, $1,000 up or down. And this is an arbitrary example. But uh, like Keegan mentioned before, there are softwares that are essentially keeping track of what the value of Bitcoin is uh, and has been at any point in time with respect to a um, Canadian dollar or US dollar or whatever. Euro, other kind of yeah. yeah. And uh, you have to download your transactions if when you want to report your taxes for capital gains, capital losses, or just... Uh, of the transactions that um, you have made over the course of the past year, uh, you would download your transactions, put it into a software that calculates the value of that transaction in your native country, native currency. That's, it just kind of spits out the number that you need to report to the government in a format that the government expects, expects so
1: yeah, those softwares exist, and I totally remember what I wanted to say. So, before you, before you uh, move on, I, I just want to uh, like yeah, just visit this topic, and and that is like I, I don't necessarily see a future where everyone moves to the Bitcoin standard or moves to having their uh, like all their finances hosted on the on in cryptocurrencies in general. However, I do see a future possibility of Bitcoin being a reserve asset or a global reserve asset like gold was before the world went off the gold standard. And so if in that case you'd have your national currency and it would be most likely a digital currency. And China's already doing this. There's talks of this in Canada. So rather than Canada be a completely fiat system where like they're they're kind of free to to print infinitely, they uh they would be backing their CB CBDC, central bank digital currency with uh, with a basket of other CBDCs like the US dollar and etc. But I I expect to see Bitcoin in that basket because of its uh, properties of being a good store of value. And that's that is essentially kind of what makes up a good backing for a national currency. So here in Canada, I fully expect us to, um, to build a digital currency. Whether or not Bitcoin will be in the basket that's backing the value of that currency, that's up in the air. But I think most people will be using Bitcoin or have a hand in Bitcoin without even knowing it. It's kind of like how AI is this like um, this occult or like this uh, thing that is kind of out there in the ether and everyone uses it on a daily basis. When you scroll through Facebook, you're using AI and no one really knows about it they don't care about it they don't know how it works but yet they're using it and they're touching it and i think that's as that's that's a good analogy for how pervasive blockchain a and b bitcoin will be for for the world and uh, that's i hope that satisfies the other part of that, that answer
2: <laughs> or that question so so that feature with with bitcoin where there's the reporting back to government yeah right the, the support for that was that Originally there in Bitcoin's design, or was that added on later?
1: As Bitcoin by design is is public. it's it's meant to be as as accountable and transparent as possible. in the sense that uh, okay. like my name is not attached to my public address or my public key, but it can be attributed through um, through second uh, second degree interaction. So again, when I make that transaction from my bank account into the exchange, I buy Bitcoin, I withdraw that Bitcoin to a public address. You can follow that paper trail, um, and and then say Keegan owns that public address. Paper trail? Yeah, that uh, <laughs> that block trail, that cipher trail. I don't know. However you want to say it, but like yeah. you know, the government can put together this, this this these tools and these reporting mechanisms that attribute real world identities to uh, that random string of numbers and letters that is my Bitcoin address, and then then that's any ad any transaction I make from that address can then be connected to all the other activity that I do on the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah. So it's actually a really nice accountable system. I I would say it's a good model for the kind of accountability we would want to build into our own national central bank digital currency when we
2: do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember looking at stuff in the news about even banks are interested in blockchain as a mechanism for storing information. Um, just as a public recording system, but also the redundancy that's supposed to be in it across storage, right? So to make it less vulnerable, if let's say some particular nefarious person broke into a bank and started trying to delete and and modify records, right? Um, You have some resistance to that. So I know know banks are already kind of in the game of using things stored with it, but it's where we go as a national currency is...
1: Up, totally up in the
2: air yeah. right now yeah
0: i yeah i don't i don't see us being a national currency that is backed by bitcoin
1: that's totally fine yeah we can differ on that opinion Do you? <laughs> i just I, like
0: not in the next couple of decades because something that we've mentioned a lot of times is um in developing nations cryptocurrencies or especially bitcoin is more valuable because in developing nations where they have been through hyperinflation or there is enough corruption that they don't have access to um, a, good their, a good hard money or just money in general. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, that's where, yeah. it, and, and they have access to a phone and they have access to the internet. That's where an economy that is fueled by Bitcoin can exist.
1: So, yeah, I, I, I think that the countries that have the most to get, uh, lose from switching to a Bitcoin-backed system will be the last to do it. The countries that are like already have weak economies and weak money are will be the first to do it. I would not They've be They've
0: sur- already started. Though. Exactly.
1: So I wouldn't yeah. be surprised by the end of this decade, 2030, that we have at least one country with a Bitcoin backed uh, monetary system. Whereas uh, the United States and Canada, Europe, it, it could be decades or a century before that happens.
0: Like, Or you might not even need uh, there for there to be a backing of any sort. It's true. just a, a Bitcoin monetary system. True. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So with respect, so, yeah, go ahead with uh, what uh-huh. other questions did you have with well, respect to your economics?
2: so uh, well, so economics, funny enough, I mean, people talk about economics as is, is <laughs> they, they think about the economy, right? Like right stocks and all this kind of stuff, but like economics is really about looking at human behavior right and how you encourage certain behaviors and um, and so with, in terms of behaviors, it's one of those things where I wonder about with cryptocurrencies, um, what, type of beha- what type of behaviors does that encourage in people, like, both on the good and on the bad, that aren't necessarily the exact same in a, like a, a fiat kind of scenario? Like. Um, so like one, like one of the good ones is, of course, if someone has a bunch of Bitcoin, it's a really good idea to encourage people to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> because sure. the value of the Bitcoin you have goes up. <laughs> but so one of the things that's happened over the last several years, if you watch timings of when Bitcoin goes up and va- has these little sp- significant, especially significant spikes in value, they're often so like a significant number of them are time for when ransomware attacks come out. Because ransomware, if you get your computer locked, they say you have to transfer me X amount of Bitcoin. Yep. Right. So it creates an artificial demand. Mm hmm um well for the folks who've had to pay for it they won't see it as artificial <laughs> <laughs> no that's a real demand but, but for yeah. you know forces forces a sort of demand on it which which if you're if you're say some particular large entity that might have thousands of bitcoin um at whatever it is nowadays was it around three thousand today well, yeah what no that? it's eighteen thousand right. dollars <laughs> <No. laughs> i'm a little behind the time the um so that's 18 million dollars. Why not pay someone 50 thousand dollars to generate a ransomware attack that might inflate the value of that 18 million up by some amount? Totally. So, so-, so that, like, there's there's positive behaviors, ne- you know, potentially negative behaviors. Has there been much look at that in the cryptocurrency community as to what?
1: It's such a good question. It's so multifaceted. I I, I want to like attack it piece by piece. Not attack it in the sense that like I don't I agree <laughs> with everything you're saying. By the way, like it is a real problem. Like one of the biggest victims of uh, these ransomware attacks is hospitals because they are notorious for having um, <laughs> a lot of data. A lot of data, Education private data that's important that they must like they don't really have a choice. They got to go find Bitcoin at that point in time and like figure out how to unencrypt their data. It's a necessity. Uh, Is the problem that they got hacked and like now is Bitcoin the problem or is it the fact that they haven't updated their security the problem? So like maybe one of the behaviors that results from this whole Bitcoin shift that that we're all going through right now is that we're all forced to upgrade our security for (laughs) our systems that probably should be upgraded anyway. And so maybe that's a behavior that we start to examine. It's like, okay, is our uh, infrastructure secure enough, uh, robust enough um, protected enough to protect against these exact attacks that will happen a side
2: effect of the side effect a side effect of the side effect sure
1: <laughs> so i could actually see some good coming out of the fact that these ransomware attacks exist the fact that they exist is kind of the conversation of like is bitcoin a tool meaning like does bitcoin come with any inherent morality attached to it am i a good person or a bad person if i use bitcoin and, like, we take the standpoint that it's a tool, and if yeah. you choose to, like, do ransomware and demand Bitcoin, it, it's no different than me kidnapping someone and asking for a wire transfer of U.S. dollars, right? We don't blame the U.S. dollar at that point. We blame the, the person perpetrating the attack. So, so yeah, With wanna- respect
0: to talk yeah. in the cryptocurrency community, there are also uh, applications or companies out there that are based on chain analysis, and that is chain analysis. Um, Specifically for ransomware attacks or transfers uh, for terrorism, uh, transfers on chain um, using cryptocurrency to fund terrorism, and governments around the world have access to contracting or looking and working with these particular softwares to find out exactly who is the money going to and who that person is or who that put the. who who that entity is who is using bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies to um fund their terrorist organization or um have this ransomware asking for this ransom um so yeah there there are tools that exist and if it, it happens on a public network so if ransomware attacks are mostly for bitcoin like we discussed earlier it is bitcoin is a public blockchain which means all of the transactions that take place on the bitcoin blockchain are accessible to everyone all around the world it isn't restricted and then the problem becomes okay how can you identify the person who is um, calling out this attack how can you catch that person and that's where you need to look at the the entry and exit point of this particular bitcoin Uh, what are they converting bitcoin into um
1: Who are they transacting with? Who are
0: they transacting with? What else has gone in and out of this particular uh, wallet that now has this ransomware Bitcoin? And uh, again, you have softwares or tools where um, companies are built around making sure that uh, you can, in some way, shape or form, um, analyze who, who these addresses belong to, and then pinpoint to an exact person or even an exact location as to where um, the the exit or the entry of that Bitcoin has been.
1: So in that sense, you kind of want yeah. these organizations to be using Bitcoin because it's more traceable than maybe a cash transaction would be. Uh, so like, if those criminals then figure out how to use a private cryptocurrency, that's that's when we mm. really have a problem because at that point nothing's traceable. So you kind of want them using Bitcoin over U.S. dollars and the the which is by the way the one that is most crime is done in today is yeah. the U.S. dollars, not Bitcoin. So
2: I'd like to throw that one in there. I thought that just jumped into mind, yeah. and not that I'm encouraging anybody to go this <laughs> route is. In that scenario where, let's say, for example, I'm some wealthy, hyper wealthy individual and I've managed to buy, accumulate a thousand Bitcoin Mm -hmm. um, and I pay someone $50,000 or $100,000 to generate a ransomware attack. What if I hired, what if I paid the person to generate the ransomware attack um, to go to a wallet? That no one has access to.
1: Oh, burning Bitcoin.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Basically making a, a pool location. Because that still does the increase in value thing. Yeah. Uh, not, not that I'm actually making a recommendation. <laughs> um, yeah. But like in terms of the design of it. Because then you know where, where it's kind of going. Um, are there things in the Bitcoin network that give you some indication based on someone creating a wallet that might actually... Like just by the properties of the wallet, like
1: yeah, some information. sort of actually. So like, I could create a, a Bitcoin wallet address as long as it's a, of a particular length and uses numbers and letters that are uppercase or lowercase. It's a valid Bitcoin public address, more or less speaking. Uh, so like, I could create an address that's a sentence, but it's it's really unlikely that I have the private key that corresponds to that sentence, right? Or Wait, like, I
0: don't think that's the question being asked. I I understood the question differently.
2: But, Can you yeah, reiterate like, the question? Like, so if it, if if, for example, this ransomware attack happens, and then all these payments go to this particular wallet, but it's a wallet that was just created to be a a repository for it that yeah. no one's going to go in and access. Right? Yeah. Is there anything from that wallet that helps governments track where that so, might have been so might have I- created it or?
0: Yeah, yeah. So if I'm understanding your question correctly, like exchanges, sometimes have know your client policies where you can understand who this person is that is getting money in and out of whatever cryptocurrency. Do wallets, can you download a wallet and is there some sort of identification that takes place whenever you generate a new wallet? The answer is no, you can generate as many wallets as you want and nobody will know how many wallets you do have. So to answer your question directly, if after generating these ransomware attacks, Um, someone's idea is to maliciously um, deflate the amount of, not deflate, I guess it is slightly deflationary because Deflating the Supply. Yeah, yeah. Deflating the supply, because their intention is to send have the ransomware be sent to a wallet that they'd have no intention of using the money from. And that's only because they have a thousand Bitcoin and they want the value of that thousand Bitcoin to go up. So this is kind of like a ploy to make the value of what they already hold go up. And yeah, I guess to answer your question directly again, it's no there's no identification for downloading a wallet like that.
1: It's it's, it's yeah. akin to it's, sinking a ship full of gold That's that's kind of the analogy yeah, It's like exactly. <laughs> that gold's just sitting on the bottom of the ocean It's out of circulation And at that point all the other gold in the world Is uh, is in higher demand Because there's less of su- less of supply and Well like,
0: that's yeah. what I heard yeah. uh, I, re- I remember watching this uh, Simply Explained um, Diamond demand and supply the oh, Beers yeah. <laughs> um, How De Beers came up with the, the strategy of Uh, locking up a portion of the diamond reserves to, one, maintain a monopoly on on the distribution of diamonds, but also, Mm -hmm. two, to control the price. Um, And essentially, I feel like that's what you're talking about with respect to what if someone has a lot of Bitcoin and they are incentivized to drive the price of their Bitcoin up by maliciously attacking uh, or having ransomware attacks done and then sending somebody else's Bitcoin you an, a wallet that will be dormant yeah i guess that's, that's where quantum computing can come in too yeah, that's where,
2: <laughs> yeah if they can if they can start then breaking the yep. wallets and the chains then 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 you could free it up but mm-hmm. but yeah that's just, just like a thought exercise kind of thing oh yeah of, i love these of, things of like yeah. what what sort of negative things can come out of it but also like i get interested in what the positive behaviors come out of it like like you say about um really encouraging computer security, right? Like i That's at, positive. Yeah, I work at a university and universities have been going above, like way above what they used to do for security. Um, basically, because these sort of attacks have been coming out and hospitals have been sort of the number one, um, government agencies have been kind of the number two and, and universities, colleges and other school systems have been kind of the number three. Like, like in, ter- in terms of where, you know, or at least high up in the ranks in terms of where these attacks get focused. And so, yeah, so there, there definitely has been that effect. <laughs> um, like, are there other ones you're see- Like,
1: just re- can we revisit the question just so like it's fresh again, like essentially asking like, what is? Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so so like um, in terms of uh, positive, positive or negative behaviors as side effects of of, uh, cryptocurrencies.
1: I think the the, the negative ones are are pretty obvious, like where it's it's just a more effective tool to hide your identity with respect to monetary transactions. I mean, that's, you can hide your identity for good reasons or bad reasons. Like Edward Snowden had a reason to hide his identity when purchasing server space. to pull off his his mission uh, but then again you know we've we can prove that there's terrorist organizations conducting illegal activity using bitcoin as their medium of exchange like that's Cool. That's the that's the negative. It's pretty actually pretty cut clear and dry. I would say one of the positive things, one of the biggest things and like this is coming from like a personal level is it's forced me to learn about money and it's forced Mm -hmm. me to take a higher degree of responsibility for the money I own and think critically about what it actually means to own my value and to own my assets. And that has personally benefited me because I have got a feeling of empowerment, of um, looking into Bitcoin and then thus owning it later. And th- I would say that that's a behavioral change in me, whereas like I now have an enhanced understanding, at least from my perspective of, of what it means to uh, to own something. Uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question or not. But oh, like- that's a
2: that's a good that, that's a good piece like like a good example of a good side effect Mm -hmm. right people getting more educated about money right because
1: are you familiar with that that uh henry ford quote uh he said this like really early in the 1900s it was uh if people understood the way that the monetary system worked there'd be a revolution overnight
2: right yeah i haven't heard that quote but
1: yeah, and th- like I didn't quite understand what he meant by that uh, until I just started looking into this and diving into the rabbit hole of exactly how our monetary system is constructed. And uh, I'm I'm all for like thinking that things are okay right now, but I'm I'm also a pragmatist in the in the sense that I think that there's always a better way. I'm always constantly searching for the better way to do things, and and I think this is one example of of a better way to do things. However, like we need to like kind of take it step by step and build those tools that stops the bad people from using it and encourages the good use of it as well.
0: It's funny that you say that this is the better way of doing things because let's just say that tomorrow, keeping that quote in mind, where he uh, Henry Ford said that if people realize the value of the monetary system, can you repeat it?
1: If uh, if people realize how the monetary system works, there will be, be a revolution, revolution over overnight. Yeah. So
0: let's say that in the next week, and this is, Very uh, futuristic, (laughs) um, time-lapsed result. But let's say that um, the the people that are in charge of uh, dictating the the amount of money that is in circulation for any particular government realized how how they could build a better system, a more transparent system, a system that gave them enough control to still have... um, have a government or i guess and uh, also give enough freedom to the people to feel like they also have power over what happens in a particular um economy i like i i still don't see that as happening until everything that we currently have in place fails
1: right it's usually not until we experience an all-out failure that, that we actually well, are prompted to respond and change the way that we do things
2: yeah like so like i think of things in the past where like that sort of thing where something was starting to be a a catastrophic problem. You will probably debate me on this, (laughs) (laughs) but like that switch to fiat currency happened at a point at which we were basically um, up against a wall in terms of what we could actually allocate as value in, in our monetary system. So that switch to fiat basically made it more or less valued assets as opposed to, Um, As opposed to like gold standard, I believe that that we had to do that. Yeah, yeah, because basically people couldn't access money in terms of getting loans. Like there's a whole, yeah, yeah. the whole stuff. The end of the seventies, right? The um, so like the nice one of the I'll say nice and bad things about about Fiat is when you when you look at it, its current its current assets, but part of that is um sort of accounts receivable in a sense in a sense like part of the value of our currency right now is what we've already borrowed against our future labor. <laughs> yeah right. right like that's that's <laughs> what our debt is right like yeah. when you get a mortgage and that has debt comes these- from the future is what you're saying yeah 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 um from the from a promise that you're going to do a corresponding amount of work in the future that you're going to use as the exchange with what's there like, like the um so like we had to do that for a reason, but it had to hit a really bad point first, right? There had to be pain. So
1: I'd like to just take a, we were willing to a walk through pain. history yeah. here to explore this, this, uh, this line of thinking that you, you presented. So like uh, we, we used to be on a gold back system and that used to work for us to a certain point. And then there was problems with access to liquidity, essentially is what you're talking about. Yeah. You, we needed more access to currency units. So we, uh, 1930s, we, uh, the United States came up with Executive Order 6102, basically made it illegal for gold to be held or transferred or transacted with. Uh, the gold was then centralized. Uh, and then in 1972, Richard Nixon said, OK, we're going off the gold standard and we're going to use uh, currency units, currency um, units. Uh, yeah, the U.S. dollar, it's as good as gold. That's where that phrase comes from. And so one of the reasons why gold was centralized in the first place is because it was difficult to transport, difficult to uh, to. Well, transport over over borders. Like, how do you send a billion dollars worth of gold overseas if you're trading with this uh, country over there? Not the backpack. Not the backpack. (laughs) Currency, like uh, U.S. dollars, and then digital currency, like uh, just the ones that came out in the 1950s, that made it so much easier to transport money, transport value over the borders. But we also had this really big issue with the gold being centralized in banks and by governments, and the people essentially not being allowed to hold gold reserves in order to store their value over long periods of time and so that was one funnel or one tunnel of uh of things that had to happen historically like we're just walking down this road and i agree that all the decisions that the the government made were like logical at the point in time it's just like those those ripple effects those unintended side effects that you can't really see coming that we're now experiencing the pain of And I I think that we are experiencing a pain as a direct result of going on the fiat system and we have to see it through. But seeing it through also means like, how do we transform our way out of this into a better system? It's like a better system would be if we're all able to securely hold, you know, a a digital equivalent of gold as individuals. And that's kind of what I see Bitcoin represent in the world is the ability for us to go back to a gold standard, but uh, in a better way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, gold, having gold that weighs zero pounds. Yeah, that's a good way to think about
1: it.
2: <laughs> In a sense, because... Oh, yeah, like, that's a funny way to put it. Like, I love it, actually. because yeah, <laughs> fixed size, and slightly growing, but for, like, I don't know, there's the 21 million thing. But there's um, but a fi- something that's finite. Yeah. But yeah, but it gets around that issue of how do you transport this stuff.
1: Right. And how do you divide this stuff? Right. like you, It's really difficult to shave off portions of gold to, to like equate <laughs> to that house that I'm trying to buy. But uh, it's really easy to calculate the U.S. dollar value of that house or the Bitcoin value dollar, the, the Bitcoin value of that house. Right. It, it just works a lot better if we can divide it. And if it doesn't tarnish over time, like information doesn't degrade. Uh, and that's that's kind of a couple of the reasons why it's like denoted Bitcoin 2.0 or gold 2.0. Yeah.
0: So we've Thank talked you. about how um, initially we talked about um, ECC, which is elliptic, ellic, elliptic, elliptic. curve cryptography um, and talked about some encryption principles. And um, from that, we went into talking about quantum computing and how that could potentially break into some wallets that um, are either dormant or belong to people that cannot access it anymore if they don't upgrade to a, a better version of that same wallet. Um, and after that, we started talking more about. Um, economics. I can, yeah, we, we started talking about economics. but
1: Morality. I think we touched on morality yeah. there. Uh, Behavior.
0: Behavior.
1: Economics. Just
0: a touch, yeah. but Drain, you raised some really, really good points with respect to people who have access to a lot of Bitcoin to date. Are they incentivized to um, increase in the amount of value of Bitcoin if they... Um, are incentivized to have ransomware attacks be um, organized and then have them send to a dormant wallet and keep that dormant so that the price of the existing Bitcoin increases, which is completely possible and you cannot really track that. And that is a really, really good example of something that you shouldn't do, (laughs) but can be done.
2: Why aren't you glad I'm not an evil person?
0: (laughs) 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 Well, do you have a thousand Bitcoin too? (laughs) (laughs)
2: not yet an an evil rich person
0: (laughs) an evil rich person Um, and then we talked about the positive and negative Aspects of um of Bitcoin, yeah. The one thing that I forgot is we talked about how crypto taxes are possible and they are possible. There are softwares that exist that can make it possible, and we've done it finally this past year. So we know exactly how to make it happen. It's a little bit tedious, but
1: actually, I, I have been reporting my taxes uh, since twenty fifteen, <laughs> uh, okay. like for as long as I've been in crypto. I don't want you like yeah, we've been doing it this year, but no, not I, the other that's ones.
0: that's not what I meant. By but okay, good. Thanks for clarifying that for yourself. Yeah, or of course. Anybody from the area who's listening, um, if you didn't want to audit us, come audit us. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and yeah, with that, I actually want to ask you, Dwayne, with respect to economics and crypto, or you know, it doesn't even have to be with respect to this. What is one radical idea that you have for the world that you want to see in your lifetime take place?
2: Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um,
0: First thing that comes well, to your mind.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, fundamentally equality. Right? Like, so. Okay. Like, <laughs> Incredible.
0: That's a radical idea.
2: Well, like, but. in, ter- in ter- I understand. Yeah. yeah. In ter- like, as it would relate to currencies and so forth. Yeah. Um, and sort of economic systems based on them. Um, basically dealing with, because we've been seeing growing inequality. Yeah. Right. Um, but is looking at re-engineering systems to actually improve that equality um and help make it so that people can realize the lies that they want to have, that we actually have the economic capacity to afford, we just don't, yeah. because because of I'll say design flaws i agree i was
0: gonna I say greed but <laughs> design flaws That's so
2: much more diplomatic to call it a design flaw <laughs> no no i mean there's design
1: flaws that greedy people have taken
0: advantage, advantage
1: of. of i that but is the, probably the most concise way to sum up this entire conversation actually yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I love yeah. that design flaws that greedy people have taken advantage of yeah
0: and can yeah. that the, like there's also that Design that flaws can. that can, really, people can take advantage of because if design flaws exist, then why is it that, like, someone can be um, poor in terms of their income and still want to take advantage of the design flaws, but that's not, they can't. They can't take advantage of these design flaws.
1: Yeah. Like, you get to exactly. take advantage of those design flaws simply because rich. of where you are. Like, yeah. like if you're in a like a position in government, for example, there's certain design flaws that you can take advantage of that someone else that is not in government can't take advantage of.
0: Yeah, it's a really radical idea. You've started us to th- think down that train.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. It's like even like even at a low level, it's like anyone who has sufficient income, either employer already pays part of it, or they, they have sufficient income to pay into a pension fund. That is actually that actually gains them value over time. That people who don't have enough. Extra like extra income to pay, relatively extra income to yeah. pay into a pension fund, mm-hmm. um, can't access right. So there's not the ability to actually extract extra value out of the system because of that. So that like there's things like that that um, that people aren't necessarily being gre- aren't being greedy in the context of pension fund, yeah. but just even a small difference in sort of economic equality right um accentuates itself right like even on a small scale yeah yeah
0: and you would like to in your lifetime see that not be the case
2: i i would like to see that not be the case
0: (laughs) (laughs) fantastic okay so if people want to reach out to you on some of your ideas and discuss some of the questions that you raised and some things that we discussed how can they find you duane
2: so i mean for for something like this I, i would usually use my uh well by email um, so Curry at gmail.com. Can you spell that? That's C U R R I E at gmail.com. Um, I got in early enough I could actually use my name. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, um, so that's probably the best one. People could reach out to me on Facebook as well. Um,
0: yeah. Cool, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on this particular episode with us and asking us really, really great questions and also opening our minds to thinking about um, the disadvantages that are caused by power that people have gained simply from getting in early. That's definitely something that I hadn't thought of. Uh, And I'm sure that our audience is uh, sent down a thinking train because of that as well. So thank you so much.
2: And thank you for giving me the opportunity to ask these questions. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. So, everybody, thank you for listening and watching, and stay tuned.